Amen. Praise the Lord. If you want to get a head start on, uh, on where we're going to be teaching from tonight, you can turn to um, John chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 21 if you like. We've been teaching a series that we've um, titled God's Attitude Toward Healing and, and or Sickness. Uh, you can't really talk about God's attitude toward sickness without talking about healing. And you can't talk about healing without coming upon God's attitude toward sickness. So we're talking about God's present day attitude, not his attitude in the days gone by or the Old Testament or in the days of Jesus or even in the days of the apostle. But uh, God's present day attitude toward healing, sickness and healing. So uh, we want to go through and I just want to give you a couple of points to consider tonight. Because there's a lot of the church world, I don't know how to... Uh, categorize it or what um, percentage to attach to it but i would uh, expect from my experience at least that the majority of the church world does not believe that healing is for everybody um, from my experience again there's a lot of christians most christians matter of fact i don't think you're going to find many christians anywhere that'll that won't uh, admit that they believe that god can heal the question is who is it god's will to heal uh, the question for them is and uh, as a result, you get a lot of people that say, well, yeah, God can heal, but that doesn't mean that, that he wants to heal everybody. So let's consider some points tonight. Um, I want to go through, um, I, well, I don't know how far we'll get, but consider several different things. Some of it may be a, um, a repeat of some things that we've said before, but that's all right. It's, it's good to hear things over and over again because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So I want to consider certain points tonight. If healing is not for everybody, then why? And I want to go through the points that I want to present to you this evening. If healing is not for everybody, then why did Jesus identify himself with the serpent of brass in John chapter 3? Notice that, John is, that Jesus uh, is talking to Nicodemus. John tells us the story of Jesus talking to Nicodemus, who is a ruler of the Jews. And Nicodemus comes, and his, first, uh, uh, his opening line is, Master, we know that thou art come from God, for nobody can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. Which shows why God should want to do miracles today. If God wants people to know today, like when Jesus was here on the earth, that he is with them, meaning that we are really the body of Christ, why should we expect that God would use a different method today than he used when his son was here on the earth? The Bible says you and I are sons and daughters of God. So why would he treat one son differently than he would treat another son? But that's a little beside the point. Anyway, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And in response to his question about miracles or his comment about miracles, Jesus said, you must be born again. Well, that rocks Nicodemus's world. He starts trying to think, uh, the only thing he can think is naturally. And so he says, do you mean a person can go back into the womb and be born the second time? What do you mean be born again? And Jesus explains to him that he's not talking about a natural birth. He's talking about being born again spiritually. Now, in the context of Jesus telling what is the most famous, I guess, and the most well-known scripture point about himself in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life clearly Jesus is talking about the way to be born again or the way of salvation whichever way you want to say it he's trying to tell Nicodemus who's a ruler of the Jews ought to know these things he's trying to explain to him this is God's plan to send his son now Jesus doesn't come right out and say that's me but he assumes rightly that nicodemus figures out that he is some special guy because of the miracles that he's done so jesus explains very simply it comes down to believing in the son of god now in that context in that discussion that he's having in that explanation that he's having with nicodemus about salvation and about being born again literally about the messiah being the son of god notice in verse 14 
Jesus is speaking. We know it's him because it's written in red. Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Clearly, Jesus is identifying himself with Moses and the serpent of brass, which is identified in Numbers chapter 21 as being a part of his work on the cross, as being the Old Testament type of the serpent of brass being a type or a picture of the work he would fulfill when he sacrificed himself on the cross. Well, now that's interesting that Jesus would identify himself that way. He didn't identify himself as the lamb that was slain. He didn't identify himself as the lamb of God. He didn't identify himself in some pretty uh, religious or flowery manner. He identified himself as the serpent of brass, knowing that Nicodemus knows what he's talking about. Now, if we go back to Numbers chapter 21, we can see what Jesus is saying is a type of himself. Now, this is not some modern-day church preacher. This is Jesus saying, this is a type of me. You know the story in Numbers 21? Well, let's start reading in verse 5. It said, And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loathes is like bread. In other words, we're tired of manna. We want something else. We've cooked manna every way we can figure it out. And so we're tired of this. We want something else. Which, by the way, all they had to do is accept God's promise and they'd be eaten in the promised land, the land of milk and honey. They passed on that, so now they're complaining about manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents. Now, this is a a real poor translation, but it's probably the best that the translators could do at the time. Um, But uh, Hebrew scholars tell us that there's a permissive verb, a permissive uh, tense of a verb that doesn't translate into the the, um, modern-day English didn't into King James. And so the King James translators translated this permissive verb in the causative sense. Literally where it says, and the Lord sent fiery serpents, it means the Lord allowed them. Now, whenever you say that, some people will say, well, you're just making excuses. You're just trying to twist the word around and make excuses. But the reality is the Bible says very specifically, very clearly, Moses said, talking to the children of Israel after they come to the promised land uh, the next time, the second time, and J, uh, Joshua is uh, going to take his place as the leader of the children of Israel. He says very specifically, you remember how God led you through the wilderness. It was a land full of fiery serpents. So the question is not, did God send fiery serpents among the people? The question is, why is this the only time in their history in 40 years we have record that they ever been anybody? The land was full of fiery serpents. Why are they attacking the people here? Well, Pastor Mike, it was the will of God. Sometimes God just brings tragedy on you. Well, who's going to know better than the people themselves? Shouldn't they know better than a modern-day theologian? Let's see what they say. The Lord sent, literally allowed, fiery serpents to come upon the people, among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, we don't know why God has done this to us. Is that what it says? The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Now, what do they know? They know that as long as they're not in sin, they have protection. I wish some Christians had figured that out. I wish a lot of theologians would figure that out. This is the reason why they spent 40 years in the wilderness and this is the only time we have record of the serpents coming into the camp. 
This is the only time where the people spake against Moses, and this was the result. Now, there were always results. There were always consequences of their disobedience. But this is the only time where the fiery serpents coming in was the consequence of their own sin. Notice what they said. We have sinned. Not God has done us wrong. Not, well, we don't understand it, but we submit to the will of God for our lives. The Lord works in mysterious ways, you know, like so much of the church will do today. They'll make excuses. The church will make excuses for why God is doing something rather than realizing that hardship is very often the consequence of sin. Affliction is very often the consequence of sin. Thank God he delivered us. Jesus delivered us from that. So he said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Please notice what the unsaved, rebellious children of Israel knew. They knew that sin opened the door to affliction and that God was not the cause of the problem, but he was the answer for the problem. Again, another great lesson for the modern day church. And the Lord said unto Moses, or I'm, I'm sorry, Moses skipped the um, sentence. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, what does that mean? That means the, the, um, the result, the end result of dying, as many people had died from the snake bites, these poisonous snake bites. That means they were healed of this poisonous snake bites. They lived. If somebody wasn't bitten, there's no point in looking. They've dodged the bullet. They may have sinned just as much as the other people. But it's only the ones that are afflicted. It's only the ones that are ill because of the poisonous snake bites that the answer is given to. Now, what does the answer pertain to? Well, certainly it pertains to their physical healing. But wouldn't it also have to pertain to forgiveness of sins? Isn't that the root cause of the problem? According to the people, it is. We have sinned. Well, don't they need to be forgiven of that sin then? Well, sure, that's what puts them back under the protection of God. So what Jesus uses as a type of himself, what Jesus said as a part of his discussion with Nicodemus about him going to the cross and as the means of salvation, he said that in the Old Testament, that serpent of brass in the Old Testament that Moses held up before the people, for the people to look at, for the people to consider, for the people to partake of, that provided not only forgiveness of sins, but healing for the physical body. That's a type of me. Now, who did the healing belong to? It belonged to everybody that looked. It belonged to everybody that looked. Now, we could go a lot of different directions here, and I don't want to get off track or way off track. I'll take a little side journey here and there perhaps. But that might be an answer for why not all Christians are healed. Not all Christians will look to the sacrifice of Jesus to include healing as well as forgiveness of sins. Now, what if somebody in this Old Testament example in Numbers 21, what if somebody looked at it and said, well, now I deserve to die. I've sinned. And I really don't care about my physical well-being. But if, if God will just forgive my sins, then that will be enough for me. So he takes a glance at the serpent of brass that Moses is holding up on the pole and says, okay, there's my, there's my forgiveness of sins. That's good enough for me. And then turns away and partakes of it to no other degree. What would have happened to him? Well, unless God would have intervened in some other way, 
he would have died. I think that's what a lot of Christians do. I think a lot of Christians will see Jesus on the cross and say, oh, look, there's a sacrifice for our sins without a clue that what Jesus said was a type of him on the cross provided not only for forgiveness of sins, but also healing for the physical body. I think it's also instructed that the type includes the work of the serpent, which is always a type of the devil, not a type of God, always a type of the devil. It includes deliverance for the work of the devil in their bodies. The folks we're going to see, if we, if we stick with it long enough tonight, we're going to see that one of these other points clearly talks about sickness as being the oppression or the works of the devil. So if healing's not for everybody, why did Jesus use the serpent of brass as a type of himself when the serpent of brass clearly provided healing for the physical body? Here's another question. If healing is not for everybody, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Why did Jesus heal all that were sick to show what the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 looked like? Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17. We'll read verse 16 and 17. It says, When the evening was come, they brought unto Jesus many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word. Notice the last phrase in verse 16, and healed all that were sick. Now, why did Jesus do this? Well, much of the church world will say Jesus healed all that were sick to prove that he was the son of God. Well, if that was the case, the Holy Ghost didn't know. If Jesus healed all that were sick to prove that he was the son of God, the Holy Ghost didn't know that. Because that's not what the Holy Ghost says was the reason in the next verse. I'm assuming you accept the fact with me that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Ghost. If this is given to us by the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost says that it was some other reason than Jesus proving that he was the son of God, then you're left with a dilemma. Do you believe the modern day church teaching that Jesus healed to prove that he was the son of God or are you going to go with what the Bible says? Folks, I made up my mind on that point a long time ago. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to stick with the Bible because it is inspired of the Holy Ghost. Well, what did the Holy Ghost say was the reason that Jesus healed all that were sick? Here's the reason that God, through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, said that Jesus, here's the reason why Jesus healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bear our sicknesses. Now, you, want to, you might want to hold your finger here and turn back with me to Isaiah 53, because this is where Isaiah said what the Holy Ghost is referring to in Matthew 8. Isaiah 53, I'll get there. Isaiah 53, verse 4 says, well, let me back up to verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. Everybody, by the way, every, every doctrinal school, college, Bible school, theologian, everybody agrees that this is talking about Jesus. Nobody argues this. Nobody argues that the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is the messianic chapter. It's the chapter that shows the work that the Messiah would do for us on the cross. Everybody agrees to that. There is no discrepancy on that point whatsoever. Anybody that doesn't believe that doesn't believe in Jesus. So everybody agrees to this. This part is not controversial whatsoever. Verse 3. Here's part of what he does. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word sorrows is the word Makab in the Hebrew and it's translated in other places throughout the Bible as pains now why did they translate it sorrows I don't know it's possible that the translators couldn't accept with their knowledge of God at the time that they couldn't accept what the Bible was really saying 
But there are many other places in the Bible where, it's talk, where this word is translated pains, talking about physical affliction. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This word grief is the Hebrew word kohle, K-H-O-L-E-E, and it's translated in many other places in the Bible, sickness. It's almost like the translator, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it's almost like the translators came to this verse and said, well, that can't be what it means. It can't mean that Jesus was a, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. That can't be what it's talking about. So we'll translate it sorrows and griefs. But he's, these are the words for sickness and pains. He is a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid as it were our faces from him and he was despised and we esteemed him not. Same words are used in verse 4. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Now, folks, don't take my word for it. You can get any Bible application that has strong concordance. Look this word up and see how it's translated in other places where it's used. It's sickness and pains. Surely, verse 4, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We'll come back there, but I want to look again at Matthew chapter 8. Jesus healed all that were sick. Verse 16, verse 17 goes on to say why? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, the Holy Ghost knew that there was going to be a controversy about healing in the church. And so, along with the commentaries of multitudes of other people that will tell you this is not talking about physical sickness, this is talking about spiritual things and, and all this kind of stuff, along with the other commentaries, the numerous commentaries you can get that say to the contrary, the Holy Ghost gives you a commentary on Isaiah 53.4. This is a divinely inspired commentary on the meaning of Isaiah 53.4. That sickness and pains of Isaiah 53.4 means sickness and infirmities. Infirmities would include pains. It would include weaknesses of all types. It's a word that's used for physical affliction. Other places in the New Testament. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Surely. The only time the word surely is used in the Messianic chapter is regarding sickness and disease. Surely. He has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yeah, but then some others will step in and say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, the Bible says that Jesus healed everybody that was sick when he was here on the earth so that that was fulfilled. Wow, that's a good point. Turn back to Isaiah 53. We better check that one out. Isaiah 53, we'll start again with verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid as it were our faces from him and he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne. Now, please notice the acquainted with sickness is identified in what he did with sickness. How was Jesus acquainted with sickness? Well, in his earthly ministry, the only way he was acquainted with sickness is that he healed it. But verse 4 tells what his acquaintance with sickness was. He bore it. He bore it. Well, yeah, but Pastor Mike, he fulfilled that in, Isaiah, in uh, Matthew eight seventeen. So that means he bore there. Well, is that what it says? He bore their sickness? And carried their pains? Or does it say our? Surely he hath borne our sickness and carried our pains. Yet we, not they, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Notice verse 5. Still talking about the work of the Messiah on the cross. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Now, folks, I'm going to have to be a little bit elementary here. But it's for a reason. 
Does our mean one thing in verse 4 and something else in verse 5? Is that possible? Is it possible that Isaiah was inspired of the Holy Ghost to say our in verse 4 but not mean us? But then use the same word our in verse 5 to mean us. Does that even make sense? Well, then the hour of verse 4 has to be the hour of verse 5. Right? Who is the hour of verse 5 for? But he was wounded for our transgressions. Does that mean the people that were here when he was here on the earth? But he was bruised for our iniquities. Does that mean the people that were here when he was here on the earth? The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Does that mean the people that were here when he was on the earth? And with his stripes... We are healed. Who's the hour talking about? He's talking about those that read and believe. The same hour of verse 5 has got to be the hour of verse 4. So what does that tell us? Here's the Holy Ghost, another divinely inspired commentary. Here's the Holy Ghost telling us that this is what Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 look like. Everybody is healed. That's all it can mean. You can't say that it was fulfilled and it's a done deal never to be repeated or never to be continued in Matthew eight seventeen, because that's not the case. That would mean that salvation was available to only the Jews that were alive on the earth when Jesus was here and not for you and me. And the same verse, verse 5, that talks about our iniquities And our transgressions, the price being paid for those, sins in other words, categories of sins. The same verse says, with his stripes, the wounding of his flesh, we are healed. In other words, the same verse that says that something was done about our sins says something was done about our sickness. Why? Because of verse 4. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Surely. Not a shadow of a doubt. No question about it. Surely. He has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Well, Pastor Mike, why aren't people healed then? Because that's not preached. Easter Sunday's coming up next Sunday morning. And all over the world, people are going to hear about how Jesus died for the sins. And that's right. He did. That's not all, all he died for. People all over the world are going to hear all week long. Really beginning with today, Palm Sunday and the Passion Week and all the different things that churches do, they'll point to the shed blood of Jesus for sin. But the same Bible that says he was wounded or shed blood for iniquities and transgressions says that he was wounded or bruised or shed blood for our physical bodies. The same scriptures that says Jesus bore our iniquities, carried them away so that we need not carry them says that he bore our sickness and disease so that we need not bear those either. Same verses. So I'm back to my original question. If healing is not for everybody, why did the Holy Ghost tell us Jesus healed all that were sick to show us what Isaiah 53, 4, and 5 looks like? See, from God's perspective, Isaiah 53, 4, and 5 were fulfilled when Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead and healing it belongs to everybody just like forgiveness of sins. What we casually call salvation belongs to everybody. Now, will everybody receive it? No. 
not everybody's going to get saved. As a matter of fact, the Bible indicates that a lot more people will not get saved than do. The gate to hell is wide. The gate to heaven is narrow. What does that mean? That means that a lot of people will pass up on what belongs to them. But does that mean it doesn't belong to them? No, it belongs to them because Jesus paid for it. And at the same time Jesus paid the price for sin, Jesus paid the price for sickness. It belongs to you just as much as forgiveness of sins. Amen? All right, let's go to another point then. If healing is not for all, why is Jesus our Passover? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says Jesus is our Passover sacrificed for us. Now, Exodus chapter 12 tells us what the Passover was like. You remember the story? How that there had been nine plagues in Egypt. Each one was a judgment against the, one of uh, Egypt's gods. Now it comes to the death of the firstborn. What's commonly referred to as the tenth plague, but it wasn't. It wasn't a plague. It was just the death of the firstborn. So God gave instruction to Moses. He said, all right, Moses, we're going to start what's going to be called for all of the rest of time, the Passover. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to have every family gather up a lamb. If the lamb is too big for one family, have two families get together. Because we want to make sure it covers everybody. We want to make sure everybody is provided for. Have them kill the lamb and put the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Now that blood on the doorpost will cause the angel of death to pass over them. Why? Because they're righteous? No, but because they're covered in blood. Because their house is covered in blood. Something else died in their place. Because they deserved to die from, from their sins because of their sins just as much as Egypt did. But here's a way through blood, through the shedding of blood. Here's a way through the shedding of blood from this thing called the Passover. Here's a way for the people of God who deserve to die just as much as the heathen because they're as unsaved as the heathen are. Here's a way for them to escape judgment. So what do they do? Well, they put the blood on the doorpost, but that's not all they're supposed to do. They're supposed to take the lamb that they killed and roast it in the fire. And then they're supposed to eat it. Now, the Bible says specifically that the Passover was for the physical strength of their journey. Specifically, it was for physical strength of the journey out of Egypt. The bondage of Egypt will be loosed. Next morning, they're going to be taken off, going on their way. And so they need physical strength for their bodies. But now let me ask you a question. Is that the only food they've got? There must be something unique about this physical strength issue. Now, they, they don't have to go buy sheep. They own sheep. They're killing their own sheep. So they could have roast lamb anytime they wanted to. What is it about this roast lamb that is so unique, so different, so special to provide them physical strength? What about people that didn't like lamb? What about people that that wasn't their favorite meal? I'd rather have oatmeal. You know, Slow dispersing carbs was better for you. Why did God have some special instruction where the eating of the lamb was concerned? Well, all I can tell you is what the Bible says. The Bible says in Psalms that they, he led them forth, talking about Israel out of Egypt. He led them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among them. That means not one sick person among them. Now, depending on the estimates that you want to believe, it was anywhere from the th- two to five million people. The most I've ever seen estimated is seven million people. Let's just say there were millions of them. If you want to take two million, I don't care if you go with the low number. Find me a group of two million, anybody that's not sick, that there's somebody in that group not sick. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. 
It's not like everybody's in the best of health. It's not like slaves are the best taken care of. There is no Obamacare for them. Which may be why God could work for them. So something happens to cause them to come forth from Egypt with silver and gold. We know what that part was. God told them through Moses, he said, now go borrow jewels from your neighbor. The word King James says borrow is literally go ask for payment for your time as slaves. See, they didn't go into the land of Egypt to be slaves. They went into the land of Egypt as Joseph's family. Joseph was their deliverer, and then they made slaves out of the people. So God says, get paid for the time that you served these people. So they went. By this time, the plagues have taken place, and everybody is so glad to see them go, to hear that they're going. Most everybody just empties out everything they have and dumps it on them. Some of the people, some of the Egyptians even said, take me with you. And there were a mixed company that came out with them as well. So we know where the gold came from. The gold came from action that they took to spoil the Egyptians. Where did the not one people person among them come from? The only thing that the Bible tells us, the only indication we have whatsoever of God doing anything or them doing anything regarding their physical strength was eating the Passover lamb. Now, shortly after they come out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 15, they come to a place where the water is no good. God tells Moses to throw a stick into the water, a tree, literally a tree. It's a type of Jesus in the waters of people. And it sweetened the waters. And God said, God made an ordinance. He said, now, I want you to be aware of something. If you'll keep my commandments and walk in my ways, I will not allow any of the sickness upon you that has come upon the Egyptians. Any of the sickness that you know of, the sickness of the world, we might categorize or summarize by saying. I'll not allow any of the sickness of the world upon you, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, the word healeth is present perfect tense. It can mean two things. It can mean I am the Lord that will always heal you, and that's good news. Or it can mean I am the Lord that just healed you, and that's good news too. Because if he is saying, and I believe he is, he uses a word. He could have used a word or a tense of the verb that means one or the other, but he used the one that means both or can mean both, and I believe it's because it does. I believe God is saying, I'm the Lord that just healed you through the eating of the Passover lamb. Now, lest you think I'm jumping in and, and, and adding something to the Scripture, I can refer you to Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 20. It tells us that 765 years after Exodus chapter 12, Hezekiah is now king of Israel. And he, the people have gotten away from the previous evil kings before him, idolatrous kings, had gotten away from the rituals and the, the feasts and uh, things like that. And the Passover hadn't, be, hadn't been held in, in many, 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 many years. Really, it's over 100 years. And Hezekiah is reminded of the ritual of the Passover. So he institutes the Passover once again. He tells the people, we're going to do this this year. Time of year comes around. Everybody does it. They don't even do it right. But he prays for the people and says, Lord, we're just getting started on this thing again. Overlook our error. And it says in First Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 20, And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. The Lord heard them and healed the people. Now, the word healed there is the word to mend or to cure. And it's used over and over and over again. Every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used regarding physical sickness and affliction. So 765 years after Exodus 12, the people were healed through the eating of the Passover. So the question is, if healing is not for everybody, why did Jesus... Or why is Jesus, by the Holy Ghost, identified as the Passover that provided not only covering from the judgment of God, but also 
physical strength and healing. Let's go to another one. If if healing is not for everybody, then why did Jesus tell his disciples to do the same works that he did when the gospel speaks so much of his healings? Turn with me over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. John gives us an account, uh, a more complete account than any of the other gospel writers. John writes much um, later than the other books of the Bible, New Testament books, of course. He writes this when he's uh, about 90 to maybe 95 years old, probably 94, 95 years old, something like that. And this is about 60 years after Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead. So John has been walking his Christian life, remembering all these times, allowing the Holy Ghost. Remember, Jesus said one of the works of the Holy Ghost is he'll bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. Think about what that meant for John. We think about the Holy Ghost bringing the word back to us and the written word that we have access to and can read and study and all that kind of stuff. Thank God we can. But they didn't have that. Now, the the New Testament books, all the New Testament books had been written, and John had certainly read them. So he knew what the Holy Ghost was saying through other people. But when John goes back and gives us an account of of his time as an eyewitness to the events of Jesus in his earthly ministry, he knows what the other gospel accounts have included. He tells us about some of those things, but he tells us things that others left out. He's been living for 60 years remembering different things at different times that Jesus said about him, about his disciples, and about God. So the the account that we have in John 15, 16, and 17, in the last night that Jesus was with these guys on earth, is a tremendous asset, in my opinion, to what we have in Christ. What did Jesus say? Well, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he said, Believe me, verse 11, that I'm in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth. Verily, verily is a, is a kind of a swear term. It means truly, truly, I mean this. It would be the equivalent of I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth in me or on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now, why would Jesus, if healing's not for everybody, why would Jesus tell us and why would John give us an account, an after-the-fact account, of Jesus saying that his disciples would do the same works that he did when the Gospels are full of his healing works. In fact, the four Gospels may tell us more about Jesus' healing ministry than any other thing that he did. That doesn't mean that he did more healing than he did anything else, but it's hard to tell over and over and over again what Jesus taught because Jesus didn't teach something new every time he taught the people. He goes from one place to another place. He may teach one crowd the same thing that he just taught another crowd. Well, what's the Bible going to do? Give us a special chapter of every place that he went and taught the same thing? I doubt very seriously if the Sermon on the Mount was the only time Jesus spoke that. In fact, the Bible says in Luke chapter 4, where he preached to the crowd in uh, Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so forth, to heal the brokenhearted and such. Jesus had to have preached that almost everywhere he went the first time. Why? Because it was necessary for the people to believe that he was anointed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. How are people going to believe he's anointed if he doesn't tell them he's anointed? And what's going to be the basis of him telling them that he's anointed if not the word of God? 
See my point? So the Gospels give us a, a greater record of the healing ministry and the healing works of Jesus than it does anything else. Now, why in the world would Jesus say, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do unto my Father, if he's not talking about healing? That would be contrary to what the Bible tells us about his ministry. Wouldn't it? Well, we know they certainly did that. The book of Acts is full of accounts where the apostles healed the people. Even the last chapter of the, of the book of Acts tells us that Peter, I'm sorry, not Peter, what's his name? Paul, on the island of Melita, healed everybody that was sick on the island. So why did Jesus tell the disciples that they'd do the same works if he didn't mean healing? Yeah, but some will step in there and say, yeah, but that healing's been done all the way with. It's, it's not the same now. Healing's been done away with. That was for the apostles. Well, what other parts of John 14, 15, 16 aren't, don't belong to us? How about the part about the Holy Ghost? How about the part of whatever we ask, call for and require, demand in his name, he'll do it. Does that belong to us or was he just talking to them? Folks, you start picking and choosing and cutting verses out of the Bible because it doesn't fit your doctrine, you're not going to have any doctrine left. All you're going to have is an excuse for why God's not who he says he is. Furthermore, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If this was just for the apostles, then why didn't Paul know that when the Holy Ghost inspired him to write to Corinth? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Notice in verse 27 it says, Now you, the body of Christ, and members in particular. One translation says, Now together you are the body of Christ with separate and necessary assignments. I like that. In other words, everybody's got a different work to do in the body of Christ. But we're all the body of Christ. Together, we complete the, the necessary and specific assignments that the Holy Ghost has for us. Well, what are those necessary and, and special assignments? Verse 28, and God has set some in the church. Not everybody is set for this, but God set some in the church. First apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healings, helps governments, diversities of tongues. Why didn't the Holy Ghost know that that wasn't always going to be the case? If healing's been done away with and, and died away with the last apostle, why did the Holy Ghost say God set these things in the church? Now, if you compare this with what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, where the ministry gifts are concerned, God set uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the church, and it tells us why, for the perfecting of the saints. Can I ask you a question? Has the perfecting of the saints idea changed in God's mind? Is it not necessary for the church to be perfected and equipped to do the work of, of Jesus now like it was in the days that Paul wrote the letter? Well, notice what God used in the days that Paul wrote the letter to affect that. He set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. I believe, by the way, I believe this is chronological order. I don't believe it's order of importance. I believe this is chronological order. If you look at the order of the, the, uh, the pattern of the church in the days of, of uh, the book of Acts and compare it to this, you'll see that this falls right along the lines of how God set things in the church. I think this is a history lesson. And God said, some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles. In other words, perfecting of the saints included miracles in the days of the apostles. Then gifts of healings, perfecting of the saints and the equipping of the body of Christ included gifts of healings in the days of the apostles. 
After that helps, diversity of songs, governments, and so forth. Now, the question is still the same, and that is, if the perfecting of the saints and the need for the saints to be perfected and equipped haven't changed, why is the equipment to do so have changed? Why is the equipment that brought about that perfecting of the saints been changed from now since the days of the book of Acts? Does that make sense to anybody? Wouldn't it make sense if God wants the same work done in the church today that he'd have the same equipment to do that work? To assume otherwise, we're going to have to pick and choose out of the list and say what was still ours and what isn't. What about governments? Has that been done away with? God doesn't expect there to be any government in the churches today. Well, we're in a mess now then. What about helps? Man, we need people in the, in the every church is looking for people to, to take ownership. Take ownership. Get involved in the church. Well, that's helps. If that's part of the list of things that's been done away with, what's the church doing that for? What about teachers? Have they been done away with? No, every church wants good teaching. Why are we picking and choosing out of the list? No, God said all these things in the body of Christ for the perfecting and the equipping of the saints. Let me give you one last one and then we'll quit for the evening. And that is this. If healing... is not for all then why did so many coming for healing ask Jesus for mercy see you got a lot of people that will say healing has been done away with in the body of Christ today it doesn't work the same way that it used to but have you ever heard anybody say that the mercy of God has been done away with no and you never will because there are too many scriptures in the Bible that say that the, the mercy of God endures forever Well, then here's the question. If people came to Jesus for mercy, if mercy hasn't changed, if Jesus being raised to the right hand of the Father hasn't changed or diminished his willingness to be merciful, which, by the way, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, says Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, or 16 through 17, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, tell us, that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find help in time of need. Why? Because Jesus is not a high priest that can't be easily touched with our infirmities. He's suffered like us. He feels the same things as us. So come for mercy. Well, over and over and over again, you'll find that when the sick came to Jesus asking for mercy, they received their healing because they recognized that healing was a mercy of God. Over and over again, people would cry out for mercy, and Jesus would say, what do you want me to do for you? They'd say, open our blind eyes, and he would. The lepers cried out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. So what did he do? He healed the ten lepers. He said, go show yourself to the priest. Time after time after time, there's, there's like 13 examples in the four Gospels. There's like 13 examples of people that came to Jesus looking for healing, and they asked for mercy. Well, if healing doesn't work the same way today as it did when Jesus was here on the earth or when the apostles were here, then that means the mercy of God has changed. Which means we've got a lot of pages to tear out of the Bible. Because where it says, for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever, we're going to have to tear that chapter out. Because his mercy to heal hasn't endured forever, according to many in the church. But if his mercy, if the Bible's true, and the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever, 
That means his healing mercy is the same today as it always has been. So if the healing is not for everybody, then why were so many people healed looking for the mercy of God when mercy doesn't change? Folks, they're like 25 points that we can go through one after the other to prove just good sense, just believing in the word, believing in the Bible without trying to slice and dice and dissect and and teach some healing doctrine. There are too many points to consider that prove the fact that healing belongs to everybody. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true, and thank you, Lord, that healing is ours in Jesus' precious name. Thank you that healing is the same today as it always has been because you're the same today as you've always been. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means he does the same thing now as he did when he was here on the earth. Lord, we call upon you not only as Savior, as the one who's made us new creatures in Christ, But we thank you that because of that work that you did on the cross, that sacrifice that you made, surely you have borne our sicknesses and carried our diseases. Surely you have borne our sicknesses and carried our diseases. Thank you, Father, that there's not one sickness, not one work of the enemy, not one attack of the devil that can keep us bound because your blood has made us free, spirit, soul, and body. We call you our healer, Jesus. We receive you as our healer just as much as we receive you as our Lord and Savior when we ask you into our heart. And we thank you that your work, your healing mercy, changes our flesh so that the life of God is made manifest in our flesh. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.